Now, the virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat, as the heat comes in. Uh, typically, that will go away in April. I've spoken to uh, President Xi. They're getting it more and more under control. So uh, I think that's a problem that's going to go away. When you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, uh, that's a pretty good job we've done. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. And from our shores, we, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. We have to be calm. It'll go away. It will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. We need a little separation until such time as this goes away. It's going to go away. It's going to go away. It will go away. You know it. You know it is going away. And it is now July. Ten million two hundred and forty-two thousand eight hundred and seventy-six infections worldwide. Five hundred and four thousand seventy-eight people dead. This episode is primarily going to focus on the response or specifically the lack thereof here in the United States. And since March, we have seen the United States torn in two. From the beginning of quarantine, it seemed that the world couldn't get any worse. And damn it, again, I was wrong. (laughs) No longer are people comparing this to the flu. Thank God. But we we still see those dissenters trying to move the goalposts with testing, among other mitigation strategies. And we saw the, the United States officially take the lead in infections on March 26th. And since then, we now have 25% of the global infections. And the next country that even comes close is Brazil with 13% of the global infections. Cases topped over a million in April. And since the race to the bottom began, we've seen 20 million people lose their jobs. And now we have great depression levels of unemployment here in the United States. The global economy has slid towards contraction. And honestly, people are struggling, not just here in the US, but throughout the world. And on the last part of the Four Horsemen in March, we were at 179,000 infections worldwide and a total of 16,000 deaths worldwide. So let's go through the timeline of how things have really become. On March 23rd, there were 16,666 deaths On April 23rd, 194,846 deaths. On May 23rd, 344,400 deaths. And on June 23rd, 480,920 deaths. And here in the United States, we have more deaths than any other country in the world. Nearly 130,000 Americans have died. And not only that, we have more infections and are breaking infection records daily now. So let's, let's back this up. Let's, let's put this into context. On October 24th, 2019, 45 days before the world's first suspected case of COVID-19 was announced, a new scorecard was published 
called the Global Health Security Index. And this index ranked countries on how prepared they were to tackle a serious outbreak based on a range of measures, including how quickly a country was likely to respond and how well its healthcare system would treat the sick and protect healthcare workers. The U.S. was ranked first out of 195 nations. Ironically, ironically, the United States has only botched the coronavirus response. And things have only gotten worse here. I've had to, to do quite a bit of soul searching just to, to get a grasp on how bad a problem that we are faced here in the United States. And American exceptionalism has blinded both citizens and leaders alike. And instead of listening to the World Health Organization, we chose to ignore them. On January 23rd, 2020, the WHO told, told all countries that they were at risk of a COVID-19 epidemic and told them to get prepared for containment, including active surveillance, early detection, isolation and case management, contact tracing, and prevention of onward spread. It is a tragedy. It is a tragedy that the U.S. failed to recognize the risk to our nation, believing that our own exceptionalism would pull us through and that outbreaks were something that happened elsewhere in the world, not here. And this deep faith in our national greatness seriously handicapped us from the start, so much so that now the hypothetical hill people want to die on is the mask debate. The mask debate. Good morning, family, all of you, because that's what we all are here. Um, what I want to say is we, the people, will work day and night to clean every single seat if need be. We will get together and do a citizen's arrest on every single human being that goes against the freedom of choice. Okay, you cannot mandate, you literally cannot mandate somebody to wear a mask knowing that that mask is killing people. It literally is killing people. And my, the people, we the people are waking up and we know what citizen's arrest is because citizen's arrests are already happening, okay? And every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested and you, Doctor are going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. Every single one of you have a smirk behind that little mask, but every single one of you are going to get punished by God. You cannot, you cannot escape God. You cannot escape God. I'm going to say that again. You cannot escape God, not even with the mask or six feet. Okay, six feet, like I said before, is military protocol. You're trying to get the people to train them. So when the, the cameras, the 5G comes out, what? They're, they're going to they're gonna scan everybody. We got to get scanned. We got to get temperatured. The kids have to go to school with masks. Are you insane? 
Are you crazy? I think all of you should be in a psych ward right the heck now because none of you, none of you know what the hell you are all talking about. This is insane. And then you want to open this meeting with a prayer to God. Are you praying to the devil? Because God is not listening to that prayer because all of you are practicing the devil's law. What happened to Bill Gates? Why is he not in jail? Why is Hillary Clinton not in jail? Why are all of, all of these pedophiles that are demanding you all to, to listen to their rules, why are they not in jail? Oh, is it because you're part of them? Thank are you, you part of the deep your state? Time has expired. The deep state is going down. And if any of you are morning. in the deep state, you're going down with it. I'm finding that you are disrupting this meeting. Thank you. We'll move on further into public comment. <laughs> so... This video was at a Florida City Council meeting, and uh, when, when I first saw this video, I, I really did find it hard not to laugh, but I, I'm going to back up for a second. I, I, I think we, we really do need to listen to her words. This woman has the fervent belief that everything that she is saying is true. We should all, we should all be worried. Instead of combating the coronavirus pandemic, we politicized it. Because masks are common sense tools. It's literally exhausting to even have to talk about this. But the fact that the right-wing media pundits have reversed course and have recasted mask wearing as a means of the deep state to achieve social control over the Americans or, <laughs> or how it is some infringement on our constitutional rights is, is not only idiotic, but downright bizarre. And I, I think I, I have an understanding of why the mask debate is the newest front of the ongoing culture war here in the United States. And I'm, I'm going to put it into some perspective. In February, essentially every governing body from the CDC to the WHO advised the public not to wear masks. That's right. I, I, I'm being serious. So, in fact, let's hear it from Dr. Fauci himself. There's a lot of confusion among people and misinformation surrounding face masks. Can you discuss that? The masks are important for someone who's infected to prevent them from infecting someone else. Now, when you see people and look at the films in China and South Korea, whatever, everybody's wearing a mask. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it, because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask, and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying inside there? Of course, of course. But when you think masks, you should think of healthcare providers needing them and people who are ill. The people who, when you look at the films of foreign countries and you see 85% of the people wearing masks, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not against it. If you want to do it, that's fine. But it can lead to a shortage it, of masks. Exactly. Which that's we're the starting point. It could see. lead 
to a shortage of masks for the people who really need it. So what happened? What, why are we seeing Republican governors and seeing this virtual backpedaling on mask policy? Well, to put it simply, the government lied. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Again, hear it from Dr. Fauci himself. But it does give it does give you some protection. So you shouldn't discount that. Now, getting back to your first question, which was what about a month or so or two or three ago when people were saying you don't really need to wear a mask? Well, the reason for that is that we were concerned, the public health community, and many people were saying this, were concerned that it was at a time when personal protective equipment, including the N95 masks and the surgical masks, were in very short supply. And we wanted to make sure that the people, namely the healthcare workers, who were brave enough to put themselves in a harm way to take care of people who you know were infected with the coronavirus and the danger of them getting infected, we did not want them to be without the equipment that they needed. So there was not enthusiasm about going out and everybody buying a mask or getting a mask. We were afraid that that would deter away from the people who really needed it. Now we have masks. We know that you don't need an N95 if you're a person, ordinary person in the street. We also know that simple cloth coverings that many people have can work as well as a mask in many cases. So right now, unequivocally, the recommendation is when you're out there, particularly if you're in a situation where there's active infection, keep the distance physically and wear a mask. So although there appeared to be some contradiction of you were saying this then and why you're saying this now, actually the circumstances have changed. That's the reason why. And I'm, I'm not trying to undermine Dr. Fauci's authority. I fully believe that he is the only voice of reason inside the White House. And we should listen to him. And that's why I played that full clip to put it into context. So I, I do understand why Dr. Fauci and why the CDC, the NIAID, our Surgeon General, and the litany of other officials decided to not tell us the truth about masks. And I'm, I'm not necessarily surprised, but hearing this, I, I understand why there is such little faith and trust in our public institutions. But let's take a step back. Think about it. They didn't trust the American public enough to not buy up face masks. And instead, they chose to lie to us. Think about the human cost. Think about how many people died and got needlessly infected because of that decision. Whether or not the reason for the lie is noble or not, our leaders lying directly to us had directly affected the compliance of mask wearing. So going back to the, the city council meeting audio that we first heard, what we had heard in that is the fruition of anti-intellectualism and anti-rationalism here in the United States. People are hungry to have the inexplicable 
explained to them in any coherent way. Even if everything about the faux explanation is categorically wrong and debunked and is outrageously ridiculous, and even if higher institutions come out against the claims and scientists and experts like Dr. Fauci come out against it, as long as it makes some kind of sense to them, they'll still believe it. Because the sheer fact that these institutions even have to acknowledge them gives their ideas more of a blessing. And to, to establish more of a big picture framework, when we, we talk about conspiracies, it really does come down to people just looking for answers that are proportional to the event itself. And I, I, I think that people don't understand that, yes, yes, a microscopic virus that is highly infection or highly infectious can bring the world to its knees. And instead of accepting that, they are looking for answers that aren't there. They go to provocateurs like Alex Jones or whomever is present to connect the dots that aren't there. And people want and yearn for grand schemes to explain the station of their lives. And the place that they are in, in their lives, creates anger. And this anger begins to build more when people start buying into the idea that the governors, not the president, is shutting down their right to work, their opportunities, and infringing on their freedoms. And despite none of that being true, they hear that and they become angry. They hear that their freedom is truly under threat and that they should prepare to fight the orders of these institutions. My name is Butch, and I'm an American patriot. See that flag? I would die for that flag. The Constitution that you are supposed to uphold? I would die for that. It is appalling that each and every one of you sitting up there as human beings, part of the human race, the only race that we have, would suggest to muffle people, to put masks on our face, to keep us from breathing oxygen, to get us to become sickly. You preach pseudoscience and safety. Does anyone care about preserving the liberty of the people who pay your salaries? Some of you are up there smirking and, and smiling at public comments to which you do not agree. I have the photos, and they're shameful. They want to throw God's wonderful breathing system out the door. You're all turning your backs on it. Can you prove that it's good for people to breathe carbon dioxide over and over and over again? So I've, I've really been having trouble understanding this mask argument. And I, I've scrolled through Facebook and among other places just to see what people are, are trying to argue and convey. And even from a political science perspective or a philosophical perspective, there is no logical argument that is in favor of not wearing a mask. Being required to wear a mask in the midst of a pandemic is not tyranny. It is not some slippery slope. It, it isn't anything remotely political, but we made it so. By not wearing a mask, 
you are jeopardizing your fellow Americans and businesses from enjoying life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in fact, you are a part of the problem and not a part of the solution. Think about it, people. The coronavirus is is apolitical. It, it does not care what God you pray to or what side of the aisle you're on. There are many Americans that, that cling to this warped idea of what freedom is. I can tell you that freedom is definitely not. It is definitely not getting your neighbors needlessly sick because you chose not to wear a mask. But too much, too much of this warped notion of freedom promoted by the aggressively not mask wearing President Donald Trump and his sidekick Mike Pence. And let's not forget the the pundits like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, what these radio hucksters and the wannabe dictators that they installed won't tell you is that freedom without any social responsibility or empathy for others is ultimately hollow. And despite these facts, let's not forget that the American people, even these damaged souls that we're laughing at on Twitter and Facebook, they themselves didn't pervert the meaning of freedom on their own. And this warped modern version of liberty that was sold to them has a really long history here in America, all the way from Ayn Rand to Ronald Reagan. And no other nation has botched its coronavirus response so badly because no other nation holds science in such low esteem. In a recent Washington Post op-ed, the Stanford psychiatry professor Keith Humphreys noted that the United States simply can't impose a coronavirus testing regimen like South Korea or Singapore because we don't trust the government on public health. Quote, clusters of gun-toting protesters opposing public health measures are a real and uniquely American problem. But it's the much more prevalent distrust in the government's role in public health that would curtail the success of any test, trace, and isolation program. This is extremely problematic. We are faced with a populace that doesn't believe anything from any person of authority, any person of science, any person from what they think are elitist institutions. This is bad because in a functioning society, freedom can flourish when it's part of a broader social compact. And when liberty is not abused because its practitioners also see themselves as part of this community where they care about others, even or especially when it comes to wearing a mask and not spreading germs to your neighbor. But we have to ask ourselves this. Has there ever been a branding campaign as successful as America repackaging selfishness, self-interest, and extreme inequality as personal freedom? Look at the irony. Look at the irony in the treatment of armed militiamen that stormed the Michigan State Capitol. And the opposite response the violent, unconstitutional crackdown 
on peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. And we're testing, you know, testing is a double-edged sword. We've tested now 25 million people. It's probably 20 million people more than anybody else. Germany's done a lot. South Korea's done a lot. They call me, they say, the job you're doing, here's the bad part. When you test, a, when you do testing to that extent, you're gonna find more people, you're gonna find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. <laughs> even, uh, even before we get into that, um, what Donald Trump said, from the very beginning, the United States' chief failure has been testing. In the last part of the Four Horsemen, uh, we had talked about this, but let, let's let's bring everyone up to speed. So let's go through a timeline starting on December 31st, where the World Health Organization warned that Chinese health officials in Wuhan revealed a cluster of cases of pneumonia of unknown cause. Fast forwarding to January 20th, the U.S. has its first confirmed case of coronavirus through travel, which was a man in Washington state. And then four days later, the CDC said that it had developed a sophisticated diagnostic test and had sought FDA permission to send it to public labs around the country. And then on the 29th of January, the White House announced that the coronavirus task force would be led by Health Secretary Alex Azar. And President Trump tweeted from the group's first meeting that the, <laughs> the experts were on top of it. And um, two days later, the Trump administration decided to restrict travel from China, but exempted Americans and allowed trade to continue. And then Mr. Azar that same day declared a public health emergency. And so now we're in early February where universities like Stanford had developed their own test based off of the German test for the coronavirus. But they kept running into regulatory roadblocks at the FDA to actually conduct tests. And so on the 4th of February, the FDA approved the CDC test, but I don't know if y'all remember, but the White House task force and all the media was focused on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which was under quarantine on the coast of Japan because 10 people on board uh, had been diagnosed with the coronavirus. And so on February 12th, the CDC publicly disclosed that <laughs> its test kits weren't working properly. And we saw a, a ton of complaints from labs around the country that not only were they getting false positives and false negatives, but that the screening itself was too restrictive. And then two days later, on February 14th, the CDC announced that it will begin surveillance testing to track the coronavirus. But even a month later, in March, the end of March, that, <laughs> that it said it hoped to begin rolling out the program, which has yet to begin in any significant way. And so on February 24th, 
the chief executive of the Association of Public Health Laboratories wrote to the FDA that, quote, we are now many weeks since the response with still no diagnostic or surveillance testing available outside of the CDC. And for the ma- vast majority of our member laboratories. And so separately, um, Dr. Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, was boasting to Congress <laughs> about the agency's aggressive response to the screening. And that couldn't be farther from the truth because on the 29th, finally the FDA released uh, or relaxed its rules for some laboratories and allowed them to actually start testing before the agency had actually completed its approvals. And at a White House news conference, Donald Trump conceded that (laughs) there would be more cases but he kept touting that there's no reason to panic at all. And I think that is, again, far from the truth, that there should be panic because the sheer amount of regulatory hurdles, the bureaucratic gridlock, and just the complete mismanagement from the top had and still has severe consequences. This doesn't even end in February. This is up until May The CDC and local public health officials had put strict criteria of who could get tested. And at first, being if you had traveled from China or if you had been in contact with someone who had contracted the the coronavirus, the, the lack of tests actually led to another failure, containment. If we were prepared our public health officials would have been able to utilize surveillance testing and contact tracing to limit the spread of the coronavirus. But here we are, with nearly 3 million infections later, the CDC has already warned that containment is no longer an option. And so now, to back up on May 28th, the U.S., had achieved a record 416,664 tests for the coronavirus in one day. So that's that's about one test per 1,000 people per day. But the United Kingdom, France, Spain, and much of the rest of Europe are were testing at a similar level. And given that only about 3,000 tests are carried out per day during a typical flu season, We are now approaching the limit of testing capacity using existing clinical laboratories and supply chains, but this is nowhere near the level needed for countries to actually contain coronavirus and COVID-19 while reopening our local economies. And so testing capacity itself determines how many cases a country can actually confirm, and insufficient testing underreports cases and deaths. And more importantly, as economies reopen, insufficient testing relinquishes control back to COVID-19 because now the, the new virus clusters are able to elude detection and these spark new outbreaks. And this now brings us to the test positivity metric. And so simply put, the, the positivity rate is the percentage of total tests administered that actually come back positive. And so if a positivity rate is high, 
that may indicate that the state is only testing its sickest patients who seek medical attention and is not casting a wide enough net to know how much of the virus is spreading within its communities. And the, the opposite, a low rate of positivity in testing, can be seen as a sign that a state has sufficient testing cap- capacity for the size of their outbreak and is testing enough of its population to make informed decisions about reopening. So going back, when Trump says more tests equal more positives, and him going even further saying if we stop testing right now, we'd have very few cases. So, and it's not just him. It's not just him. His sentiments have been echoed by Vice President Pence, who even recently urged governors to cite increased testing as the reason for any growth in cases as they encourage people with the news that we are safely reopening the country. And, okay, the extreme version of this argument obviously makes no sense. If we stop testing for cancer, cancer diagnoses would also go away, though cancer's prevalence in the population would, in fact, remain the same. But at least in theory, though, the milder version could be right. As we test more people we may see more positive tests. The increase in cases might not necessarily mean that the virus is spreading aggressively. Rather, it could just be an artifact of increased surveillance. But taking a closer look at testing here in the United States shows that this theory is is dangerously wrong. To, To understand why, though, We have to look not just at the number of tests each state is doing, but at the positivity rate of those tests we were talking about earlier. So in combination, those two metrics give a sense of whether infections are rising, declining, or holding steady. And in 28 states, the sobering answer is that the virus is racing ahead of our public health measures to contain it. And and in fact... On July 3rd, the U.S. reported a whopping 54,000 new cases of coronavirus. This sets a record for the largest daily increase since the start of the pandemic. And according to public data, coronavirus cases have in fact increased by 50% since reopening in May. That is alarming. So in the past two weeks, more than 10 states have reported increases in both new cases and positivity rates. And these trends are more pronounced in in states Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and my great state of Texas. And these states are all doing testing, more testing than in previous weeks. But if the infection rate were holding steady, we'd expect the positivity rate to at least stay leveled with it, right? But, but we aren't seeing that. We're actually seeing the positivity rate double in some areas and beginning to surge not only daily, but in fact on, on seven-day rolling averages. So to, to take an example of one of those states, let's look at my state, Texas. So before reopening on Memorial Day weekend, 
the positivity rate here in Texas was a steady 4%. And since reopening, it has more than tripled to 13%. And so to, to not just be cynical, I will include a positive t- statistic into this episode. And that is that the fatality rate is in fact trending downward. But, but don't kid yourself. Seriously, that, that means that we are not out of the woods because the disease has now found new patients, young people. And young people don't live in a vacuum or isolation. So the uncomfortable truth that many states are finding themselves in, they're finding more cases relative to the amount of tests they are conducting provides the strongest rebuttal to the administration's assertion that case numbers are rising because we're getting better at finding cases through increased testing. They tell us the opposite, that each of these states needs to do even more testing to find infections so that we can contain them, followed by more rigorous contact tracing and isolation. And if states are failing to control their case numbers, they should halt reopening immediately. And they should be sure that people are adhering to social distancing recommendations. So testing is is not an obstacle to Trump's goal of reopening the economy. It is, in fact, one of the tools that will allow us to control the disease spread, to keep people safe and give citizens the confidence to reemerge outside of their homes because ignoring this data is not a serious strategy whatsoever. It is in fact both a threat to the health and safety of the economy. Let's start with the unemployment. We have record unemployment. In the shortest amount of time, we've had over 42 million people file for unemployment compensation. There is no precedent for something happening that deep, that terrible a cut in that short a period of time. When you have unemployment like this, the way capitalism as a system works, this level of unemployment sends an an unmistakable message to every single employer. Whether that person is a nice person, a not nice person, greedy, not greedy, really doesn't matter. What every employer knows is you can now go to your workers and say to them, often quite honestly, I've had a hard time, the pandemic has hurt me, the crisis has hurt me, I'm gonna have to cut your wages by 20%, I'm gonna have to contribute less to your benefits, you're gonna have to come in a half hour earlier, you're gonna have to stay longer and your lunch is gonna be shorter. I'm very sorry, but you and I both know that if you don't accept these conditions, there are 40 million people out there who will be grateful since they're so worried about whether they'll have a job when this is over and what the conditions of that job will be. So here's what's coming, and that's why I'm a little down about it. We're going to have a compression, which is a nice word, a diminution, a reduction in the standards of living and the standards of consumption in the years ahead unless something drastically changes, because that's how our system works. Even if you're an employer who wouldn't want to take advantage of the situation, your competitors will be doing it, and then you'll be forced, on pain of your own survival, to do likewise. No one that I hear is talking about what is going to be done 
And what is going to happen to the consciousness, the feelings, the attitudes, the politics of the American working class as it goes through what I just described? So that was professor and economist Richard Wolff, and I, I don't think I could have put what he said any better. So let's unpack what he's saying. First, I, I think we can agree that there is a number of people who believe that the choice that we're faced with is between the economy or our health. And in short, I, I think this has to have been the, the most short-sighted approach and the largest mistake that we as Americans have made. Why is it that countries like Singapore, like South Korea, like France, Italy, Germany, Canada, and even China, and I can keep going on and on, why were they able to get this right? Well, they made agreements, their governments made agreements with the companies in their respective countries and said to them, you don't get help if you fire anyone. But here in America, that is far, far from what we did. And Trump wants to tout these record job gains as if that wasn't because we had record job losses. But you won't hear him talk about the number of permanent jobs that are being lost, increasing to 2.9 million. These are jobs that are not coming back. And, and for those of, of you who still happen to have their jobs, I think the analogy of workers being held hostage is not only appropriate, it is a fact. It should be an outrage that workers are being told to not complain about working in the midst of the worst modern pandemic and not to complain about their working conditions and that if they don't return to work, that there are 40 million other people looking for a job. The fact that they are forced to choose between a paycheck and their health is absurd when in fact workers had the social safety net of unemployment insurance that they were able to collect from until the pandemic subsided. Not only would this, would this stymie the spread of coronavirus amongst the general public, but this would have prevented workers themselves from becoming sick. And the statistic from the unemployment reports from the Bureau of Labor Statistics should scare everyone. It is that over a third of Americans didn't pay rent in April and May. And th this isn't surprising, surprising, given that many Americans were already living paycheck to paycheck. But what this spells for us is trouble. Think about the tens of millions of people getting evicted from their homes in the midst of a pandemic. So, not only do we have the riots from the 1960s, an economy in worse shape than the 1930s, and the worst pandemic since the Spanish flu since 1918, 
we're about to see a homelessness crisis, the likes that have never been seen before in history if we don't do something. In every step of the way, politicians and government leadership has chosen to fuck over workers time and time again. And instead of putting a moratorium on rent and mortgages and helping out landlords, they chose to give half a trillion dollars to the largest corporations while tens of millions of Americans have to wait in bread lines. This is where I think we as Americans should be terrified. For a time, I have long held the belief that American influence has been waning, that the abstract idea of the end of American empire was just that, an, an abstract idea that I had only raised during hypotheticals and devil's advocate arguments. But now this has come out of the fringes and into the forefront. And as we've talked about throughout this episode, this has essentially led to this sobering fact that America is on a fast track to decline. And coronavirus has shown not only do we have no moral authority throughout the free world, that not only did our leaders fail to protect us from ourselves, from containing the disease, but the sobering fact that they don't care about you or me. Because now in addition to worrying about our jobs, our health, and our livelihoods, we as Americans must now be subjected to months, if not longer, of videos and pictures of Europeans, uh, of Canadians, casually walking around on the streets while we are forced to stay indoors. And it's a painful and stark demonstration of national decline. And even more galling, the U.S.'s COVID failure means that its citizens can no longer travel freely around the world. <laughs> and ironically enough, both Mexico, Canada, and Europe have planned to impose a travel ban on Americans. But the consequences of U.S. decline will far outlast the coronavirus. With our high housing costs, our poor infrastructure and transit, our endemic gun violence, our uniquely police brutality, and our bitter political and racial divisions, the U.S. will be a less appealing place for high-skilled workers to live. So what that means is companies will find other countries in Europe or Asia or elsewhere as a more attractive destination for investment, robbing the U.S. of jobs and depressing our wages even more and draining away the local spending that, the, that powers the service economy we live in. And this, in turn, will exacerbate some of the worst trends of U.S. decline. This means less tax money leading to even more urban decay of our infrastructure, of our education, and our social welfare programs and that are already being forced to make big cuts. Anti-immigration policies will throw away our country's most important source of skilled labor and will weaken a university system that has already been under tremendous pressure from state budget cuts. In almost every systematic economic advantage possessed by us here in the United States is under threat. Just look at the pharmaceutical company, Gilead, who's charging Americans more than any other nation for the same coronavirus, coronavirus drug remdesivir. How uniquely American when we taxpayers funded that drug. 
And unless there's a huge push to turn things around, to bring back immigrants, to sustain research universities, to make our housing cheaper, and to lower both the drug costs and infrastructure costs, and reforming our police and restoring competence to the civil services, the results could be decades, decades of stagnating or even declining living standards. And the biggest danger might come later. The United States has long enjoyed a so-called privilege as the financial center of the world, with the dollar as the gold standard of the global financial system. This means that the U.S. has been able to borrow money cheaply, and Americans have been able to sustain our lifestyles through cheap imports. But if enough investors, both foreign and domestic, lose confidence in us as a country, that advantage will vanish. And in April and May, roughly half of all commercial establishments, this is retailers, this is restaurants, among other businesses, did not pay their rent to their landlords. <laughs> and what that means is that the landlords are in deep, deep trouble twofold. Because not only do landlords borrow money from banks, but those banks they borrowed money from are now going to sue the landlords and both groups are suing each other and whoever has the most money in court will win. And what's even more alarming and, and more nostalgic is the fact that these commercial loans that these landlords took out have been packed into securities. <laughs> Like we haven't been here before in 2008. And those investors who have invested into those securities are not going to be made whole. And, and they are going to go after bankers. So if capital begins to abandon the United States and the dollar in large amounts, our currency will crash. And Americans will find, we will find ourselves paying much more for everything from cars and television to, to gasoline and imported foods. So interest rates, like, think about this, interest rates will be raised in an attempt to lure back investors. And the country it, it might go, undergo a period of stagflation worse, worse than that of the 1970s. And this will lead to large-scale unrest and would undoubtedly result in the worst-case scenario of the U.S. collapsing like Venezuela. And this outcome should be avoided at all costs. But it's an outcome that is no longer out of the realm of possibility, thanks to both the complacency, the arrogance, and the misplaced priorities of our corrupt politicians and the deep and bitter divisions amongst voters here. <laughs> if... If the United States goes from the wealthiest juggernaut to this floundering and dysfunctional developing nation in less than a few decades, it will be one of the most spectacular instances of civilizational decline in world history. Every citizen and every eligible voter in this country should be hell-bent should be hell-bent on, on the task of reversing the decline and restoring trust, not only in our public officials, but in our national competence.
So I, I hope you enjoyed your monthly dose of cynicism. Stay at home. <laughs> and if you can't, wear a mask. Until next time, friends. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame.